this morning uh, in our walk through the life and ministry of Jesus as a church. We're walking through the book of Mark verse by verse. It's only taken us six years this far, but we're getting... No, I'm just kidding. But it's been, it's been really good. And, and this week we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. So if you guys would just, uh, just grab your Bibles and find Mark chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, there's one at the end of the road that's our gift to you. And uh, so, so have it that. And, uh, but we're going we're gonna to see a question about what the greatest commandment is. People throughout history have loved to pursue and seek out greatness. We love to ask that question, don't we? Like, what is the greatest? Any boxing fans here? No. Okay, so I've got the wrong stories, but we're going with it. So we know who Muhammad Ali, right, is? Okay, so Muhammad Ali is known for his power and his skills in the boxing rings, but he's also known for some of his quotes. Man, he just said some of the craziest stuff. But he said at one point, he said, I'm young, I'm handsome, I'm fast, and he says, I can't possibly be beat. Right? He's the greatest is what he says. He said this. He said, I'm the greatest, and I said that even before I knew I was. And probably the quote that showed the, most, his, the confidence the most was this. He says, I'm not the greatest. I'm the double greatest. Just made up stuff as he went, man. But, but people want to know, and we love to argue about what or who is the greatest. What do you guys think? Who's the greatest band of all times? You need Jesus, all right? No, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. <laughs> ACDC, all right? Anybody else? Somebody said Lady Gaga. I don't know. We're going to have to pray over something. We're going to have to help you guys out today. I don't, I'm just kidding. What is it? Who is it? Glenn Miller. My wife will make fun of me, but I like the Gaithers, okay? I'm an old man in, in, in a 37-year-old body, but uh, all right, so, so <laughs> all right, we, we can't agree on who's the, uh, the greatest man of all time. What's the greatest movie of all time? Who's the greatest baseball player of all time? Who's the greatest basketball player? By the way, I'm just going to let you know, if you say anybody but MJ, we're just going to have a problem, man. None of this LeBron James stuff, okay? Let's just kind of throw that out there. MJ is the way to go. So, by the way, I will not play LeBron James in basketball, just so you know, man. He's... Which country or civilization is the greatest in history? What U.S. president is the greatest in our history? We have all of our own opinions on all of these things, on what or who is the greatest. We like to answer the, ask those questions, don't we? Like, who or what is the greatest? Things weren't any different in, in this time when Jesus was here. And so I want us to see again here that, that, that Jesus... He's, he's, he's coming in here, and, and Jesus has already said, man, to be great is to be last, right? So, that, so for us, for greatness looks a little bit different, but, but people have always wanted to know who or what is the greatest. For these guys here, those that were listening and following along with Jesus, really even arguing with Jesus, they pursued greatness, and they too wanted to know who or what is the greatest. And so when we come to our text today, we have a religious leader, a scribe, coming to Jesus and he asked him a question about what is the greatest or what is the most <clears throat> important commandment. Before we dive in, just remember, Jesus over and over throughout his, throughout his life on earth has pointed to Scripture. We've talked about that the last three or four weeks. Jesus continues to over and over again point to the Word of God. When he's asked a question or when he's teaching, he continually refers to the Word of God. He's affirming the, the power and the authority of the Word of God. Church, that's huge for us. Man, we've got to get that. We say at our church, by the grace of God, we'll remain faithful to the Word of God. Man, we believe that it's the inspired, God-breathed, all of it is Word of God. 
Many times for us, even as Christians, the Bible's not the first place we go, is it? Prayer's not the first place we, we go. But Jesus shows with his teaching and his actions the authority of the word of God in our life. Second Timothy teaches us all scriptures, God breathed and inspired by God, and we're going to see Jesus affirm that. So Mark chapter 12 is where we're going to be at today, beginning in verse 28. And so if you guys would, to honor God and to, to read the word together, if you guys would stand with me this morning. If you don't have a Bible or a device, we'll have it up on the screen for you. Mark chapter 12. Verses 28 through 34. The Bible says this. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing. He's talking about the Sadducees arguing with Jesus. Heard them arguing and recognizing that he, Jesus, had answered them well. He asked him, what commandment? The scribe is asking Jesus, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. Verse 31, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the, with all the hearts, with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Church, let's pray together. Father, we love you, and we thank you that you are in charge. We thank you that you are the greatest. God, we we thank you that you showed us a love greater than we've ever or will ever experience. So God, as we come to your word this morning, we just hear it. God, we pray, Lord, that it's not my word, that they would hear from you this morning. And God, that we would walk out of here more like you, more in love with you and more in love with others that you have called us to love, Father, because of who you are. And so God, we ask, Lord, that you would help us set aside any distractions and listen to you this morning. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. We actually, you guys saw me up here on the cajon. I was actually going to be Topher, but he hit the thing so hard. Show him your hand, Topher. He hit the thing so hard he just broke it this morning. So that's not true. He was going to play, but his hands broke. Good to have you back too. He's back from Emory Riddle from school for two weeks, maybe? One week. Just this week? All right. So just love on him, embarrass him, mess his hair up, all that good stuff. So good to have you back, Chris. In the passage leading up to where we are today, we've seen the Pharisees, we've seen Herodians, we've seen the Sadducees, we've seen all these people, all these religious leaders come up to Jesus, challenging him, questioning him, trying to get him in trouble, trying to trap him and find a reason to arrest him or remove him, eventually to kill him. The Bible says that they had planned to destroy him. But Jesus continues to show that he is the authority, that he is God, that he is the Savior, and that he's too smart for their tricks, which is good. And so now we have another person come to Jesus. He's known as a a scribe. A scribe is really an... It's an expert of the law, the law of Moses. He's an expert of the law. He would be someone like a a religious lawyer, I guess we could say, right? Someone that prided themselves in being able to read and understand and interpret the law and what it meant. But this account encounter with the scribe is different from all the previous ones. The questions and challenges before the scribe came, came from groups of people, probably with the intent of intimidating Jesus, probably with the intent, or we know they were intent to, to destroy him, but this is just different with the scribe. He comes just one, he doesn't come with a group of people, and I would, I would dare say, I, I believe that he has good intentions when he comes to Jesus. And so verse 28, it says, one of the scribes came, 
and heard them arguing and recognizing that he answered them well. So prior to this, as we saw last week, these Sadducees confronted Jesus. And so the Sadducees were, were a group of religious leaders. They were the higher class, right? They took up most of the Sanhedrin. They only believed in the Pentateuch. You guys remember what that is? Genesis, Exodus. You get, hey, you guys passed. Some of you do. I don't know. But that's the, they only believed in the first five books of the Bible. And so they're arguing with Jesus, trying to discount and disprove the resurrection and trying to discount and prove that we're going to spend eternity with Jesus if we trust in Christ. And so they're trying to disprove all of that. And then and, and, and Jesus begins to teach. And the scribes were listening to this scribe, a person was listening to Jesus and was, with, was impressed with his answer. And he said, the scribe asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Here's what he's asking. We've got these commandments, and he's asking them, which commandment is first in rank? Which commandment is the most important, or which is the greatest? Which one is the greatest? So Jesus is going to answer this question, and he's going to make the answer seem pretty, bless you, going to make this answer seem pretty simple. But it's really a tough question whenever you know the history of this. It was a tough question that had been debated amongst the religious leaders and the scribes for many, 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 many years. For these scribes, think about it this way. We think, when we hear commandments, we think how many? Ten commandments, right? We think about ten commandments. They had, they had identified not just ten commandments, but they had identified 613 commandments out of the first five books of the Bible. That's a few to follow. Amen, church, right? And so out of these 613, they always have to make things complicated. So out of these 613, they broke the commandments out into groups. One of the groups was positive and negative commands. So the Bible, what they believed is there was 248, what they called positive commands, and they had 365 negative commands. Then they also divided the 613 laws or commanded what they called a heavy law or a light law. Are you with me, church? One that has a, that makes pretty much sense. Okay, so but a, but a light commandment would be a, a command that has less demands on it. It would have a little more leniency on it, right? Less punishment. When I was writing this, the only thing I could think of was driving. Tucson has the best drivers in the world. I'm just, I don't know. The two examples I'm going to get are both laws, right? They're both, they're both laws that we have to follow. But if you're out driving, you've got a police officer behind you, and you're making a left-hand turn, and you forget to use your, you forget to use your blinker, right? You, you might not even get pulled over for that, right? And if you do, you're probably going to get a warning. But even if you get a ticket, man, that penalty is not going to be very stiff, Right? It's not going to affect your insurance that much, if at all. But then there's this heavy driving law. If you're, if you're caught drunk driving, that would be a heavy law. Are you with me, church? Right? They're not going to mess around with that. Or if you're caught, I grew up in Missouri, and the state law was if you're going 30 miles an hour over the speed limit, that is attempted vehicular manslaughter. All right? And so if you get pulled over for that, man, you are in trouble. Right? I, I don't think they're going to let you just keep driving. Right? I, I don't think they're just going to let you just get off with a warning. I don't think you're going to have a little fine. That sucker is going to hurt your pocketbook, and it's going to hurt your insurance for about like five years. Are you with me, guys? Anybody ever have that? You might even see jail time. I asked permission with this from my little brother, but my brother went to school where, where Jamie went, Pastor Jamie went, uh, Baptist Bible College, and it's in Springfield, so it's three hours away from Kansas City. 
And my brother was working. You got to see my brother, man. He's not, he's not real big, but he's security. It was great. And so he gets in his car, right, Jamie? Like he's just, so, so we get, he gets in this car and uh, he had worked security that night. He got off at midnight and he wanted to get back home so he could sleep a little bit before Easter. So he had worked that Saturday and he wants to get home. And so he's driving through this little town called Bolivar, okay? I don't know, it has like seven people in there. And so they've got, I don't know how many police officers, but my brother, man, was driving in the left-hand lane. And the guy, the speed limit was about 60 miles an hour, and my brother was going, I have permission, Matt, you can't get, can't get mad at me. I mean, my brother's going like 112 or something like that, man. He was just, he was booking it. And, uh, you know, I know police say, and I trust them and pray for them and all that other stuff. They say they don't use tickets for their budget and all that other stuff. I don't know about that. But, man, they, they could have arrested my brother at that spot. Man, they didn't let him go on, but uh, they, they said they let my brother off easy. What ended up happening, he's got a, he got a ticket for everything. You know, they, my brother took his seatbelt off. He got a ticket for it. My brother spit out on the street. He got a ticket for it. My brother was driving in the left-hand lane. He got a ticket for it. And then my brother still had to spend two days in jail. Man, that was a heavy driving law. Are you with me, church? Man, some things are heavier than others. So the heavy commands would be ones that were more binding. They took more serious and had more severe punishments when, when broken. And there was much debate amongst the religious leaders and the scribes as, as to these commands. Which ones were more important? Which ones were heavier? Which ones were lighter? All that stuff. And the, and the scribes and these leaders, they just, they just argued over all of that. So this had been going on for a long time. And the scribe just says, man, I think Jesus might be able to give me the answer. And so he comes to him and he's really asking Jesus, he said, all right, Jesus, you seem pretty smart. We've got 613 commands. Which is first? Which is the greatest? And I believe his question was sincere some would argue and say that he was trying to trip him up but jesus replies as we talked about a bit ago and he, he quotes scripture to answer this question he goes back to deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 through 5 the jewish people called this section right here the shema the shema was a, a section of scripture that they prayed uh, morning and, and evening and they recited that as a confession of their faith and so they know this really well and so in verse 29 jesus answered he says the foremost is Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus begins by saying, the Lord our God is one Lord. This is important, church. Uh, Jesus is, is quoting this passage and answering their question about the greatest commandments. And he begins by making a statement. He makes a statement of exclusivity. I mean, we live in a, not just a world, but we live in a city of this coexist thing. Jesus is saying there's one God. That's it. There is one God. There is one Lord. And after that, he goes on to quote and teach them that the first and foremost command is to give that one God, to, to give our Lord all the love we have. A few weeks ago, we looked at a passage and Jesus was teaching us to render to God the things that are his. What does that mean? Give to God what is his. How do we know what's his? Well, the Bible tells us that we were made in his image, right? And so we owe all of us to him. We owe all of our, our, our worship, our life, our work, our schooling, all of us we owe to God. And here Jesus is really, he's saying there's not many gods, there's one God. There is one God, church, and, and he alone is Lord and he deserves everything. There should be nothing or no one that takes his place in our life, church. And as God and as Lord, give it all to him, love him completely. And as we look at what Jesus is telling them as the, for, the foremost and the greatest commandment, we see, church, that we must love God. 
A lot of times we serve and we do and we talk and we do church. Are you with me? We, we do ministry. But sometimes we forget to love God. Just to simply love Him. Sometimes we just, we, we miss it. We serve, we listen, we try to obey. But sometimes we miss, we miss it just to love God. Say that with me, church. Love God. Say that, say that with me. Love God. Right? But we don't just love Him, church. Jesus lays out a measurement for us. Okay, Jesus, I'm supposed to love you, but how much? What's my love supposed to look like? Well, the first thing is this. We must love God supremely. On the back of your bulletin, there's a place for your notes if you want to fill that in. Love God supremely. And there's a reason that we use the word supremely. Because that means that we love Him most. We love Him absolutely. We love Him completely. And we love Him thoroughly. That's what that word supremely means. And so what, does, what, what Jesus does to answer this question is this. He first points them to the one true God and Lord, and then he tells us to love him with the love that he alone deserves. And part of loving him supremely is this, to love God for who he is. Love God for who he is. I'm just going to be honest with you. You spend time in the word, you spend time in prayer, you're going to fall more and more and more with this, with this God that loves you. And then he tells us, how do, how do we love him? That we're to love our God with all of our heart and all our soul and with all our mind and with all of our strength. And we're going to look at those separately. But really what Jesus is saying here is this. Our response to God for who he is is to respond, church, with complete love and devotion to him. With all four areas here, Jesus says to love God completely and supremely in every way possible. So we love him supremely. When we love him for who he is, and then we love him supremely when you love God with all you are. We're really good in America with loving him on our Sundays. We're really good with loving God at dinner time. We're really good at loving God at nap time. Are you with me, guys? We're really good at loving God when we need God. But are we loving him supremely for who he is and with all of who we are? So let's unpack this a little bit. The heart, soul, mind, and strength. What does that look like? And you're going to see here, there's going to be some overlap here, and it's intentional. When we look at the heart, the heart is really the center of who you are. It's the, it's the center of all physical and spiritual life. Paul Tripp is a, a pastor and author, and he says this about the heart. He says it's the steering wheel of your life. Proverbs 23, 26, we see this passage, My son or my child, give me your heart, God says. Give me your heart. And let your eyes observe my way. We must give him and trust him with our heart. Proverbs 4.23, it shows us the importance of the heart. It says this, guard your heart above all else. Above all else, church, we guard our heart because it, it doesn't say guard your job. It doesn't say guard your money. It doesn't say guard your reputation. It doesn't say guard your family. It says guard your heart above all else. Why? For it is the source of life. Your translation may say guard your heart above all else for from it flows the spring of life. The heart's a big deal. And so we're to love God with all of our heart and from our heart. The heart is the deepest part of who we are. Charles Spurgeon once said this, there is to be in our love to God a heartiness. We are to throw our whole selves into the love that we give to him. Our heart is to have its whole being absorbed into God so that God is the hearty object of its pursuit and its mighty love. Now we love God with all our heart and we are to love God with all of our soul. 
This is known as the, our, our, our inner being. It's our, it's our emotions, it's our feelings, it's our desires, and it's our affections. You also see it described in the Word of God as our spirit. Danny Aiken, author Danny Aiken and seminary president says this of the spirit. And, and the, he, says, he says this speaks to the spirit and the self-conscious life. It's our life, church. We see the soul described in Psalm 42, 1 through 2. It says this, the psalmist writes, As a deer pants or longs for flowing streams, so longs my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. The heart and soul often go together. So to quote Spurgeon again, in regard to loving God with all your heart and soul, he says this. He says, we must be ready to give up. How do we love him with with our heart and soul? We must be ready to give up house, home, liberty, friends, comfort, joy, and life at the command of God, or else we have not carried out this commandment. That's the love he's calling us to. So verse 30, you shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your what, church? With all your mind. Your mind is your intelligence. It's your intellect. It's your thoughts. It's your understanding. It's even your imagination. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says that we are to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Loving Him with our mind means that every thought, church, every judgment, every conviction, every reasoning, every understanding is laid down at the feet of God, knowing in our mind that there is a God that is good and that He loves us. That should bring joy to every thought of Him, church. So all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. Your strength speaks of your physical activity and even your, your will. So think about abilities and talents and the steps that you take in life and and your actions. Jesus calls us to keep nothing back in regard to loving God with all of that. And so here's an easy question. Do my actions, do my talents, do my skills, do my physical, does my physical strength and my will, do those things in my life show my love for God? Are we using those things to please and honor God? Are we doing those things out of love for God? Are we loving Him with what He has given us physically, and mentally. And as you've seen in here, there's a lot of overlap in these categories uh, given by Jesus, which makes sense because there's a lot of overlap in what, I, in what I think and feel and do and pursue and live for in my life. Are you with me, church? A theologian once said this. It's, it's unknown who said this. We know he's a theologian. God is not satisfied with anything less than the devotion of our whole life for the whole duration of our lives. Let me say that again. God is not satisfied with anything less then the devotion of our whole life. For how long? For the whole duration of our life. But here's the reality. Because of who God is, He's perfect and holy, He demands this out of us. Right? He has to. And He absolutely deserves this supreme love from us. But another reality is this. There isn't one man that has ever been able to keep this great commandment outside of Jesus, which was fully God and fully man. Hence the need of a Savior. If Jesus says, here's the greatest commandment, and we're unable to keep and follow 100% of the time the greatest commandment, then we need, right, we need, we know that we need a Savior at that point. When we see what God deserves and demands, and then we see our own lives, man, don't look at your neighbor, look in the mirror of yourself. When you look at your own life, man, we know we can't live up to that. We fall short of that. But we also see Jesus, the Savior, that, that loved us and came to bridge that gap. I came across the list that I thought was pretty helpful to give insight into our love for God. And we'll put these questions up here. And these questions, 
said, ask yourself these questions to really gauge your, your love for God. Is the Lord the all-consuming passion of my life? I think we could close up right there. Amen. Man, let's just, can we answer that question? Is the Lord God the all-consuming passion of your, my life? It, the other question, do I have a deep, intense, and abiding affection for my Lord? Am I loyal to my God with an exclusive love? Meaning your love for Him surpasses all other loves in your life. Now I'm going to tell you, man, I love, I, we're coming up almost a couple weeks. 15 years with that, with that lady right there. 15 years, man. Are you with me? But I have to love God more than her. We'll talk more about that. Your, your love for Him surpasses all others in your life. Do I resist or oppose anything that opposes my Lord? Am I zealous to defend with grace my Lord's name and honor? We see David do that in an example of that in the Psalms. Do I enjoy spending time with my Lord? That's a great question. Man, I love spending time with my beautiful wife. Are you with me, man? You just say yes, all right? Yes, that's the answer, right? I love spending time. Why? Because that shows that you love her. Do I tell my God that I love him? Do you tell him? Do I talk with him as much as I can? Those are all questions that we can ask ourselves to gauge whether we're loving God or not. And hopefully these are, uh, it's a helpful tool for you this morning. But remember, this is important, church. These are not things that you do to get God to love you. These are things we do because you are already loved by God. These are things you do because you love him. We can't earn God. Are you with me, church? 1 John 4.10 reminds us that we love him because he first loved us. And so the foremost and the the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love him with our entire being. Every part of who we are should seek to love God completely and supremely. Pastor David Platt and author David Platt had had a great take on this. And to summarize what he said about this passage, he says this. Do we have an addiction for God in our life or do we treat him as an addition to our life? Do we fill our lives with everything else and then find a place for God? Or do we have that addiction that we can't get enough? Every part of who we are loves him to the point that we can't stop thinking about God. We can't stop pursuing God. We can't help but respond by obeying him and, com- and his commandments. And we can't help but tell other people about him, church. Do we love him? That's the question. Do you love God? David writes in Psalm 63, God, you are my God. He said, I earnestly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you. Do we see that love that he's got there? He says this, my lips will glorify you, God, because your, your faithful love is better than life. And it's that love, it is because of who God is and his steadfast love for you and me that we can respond by saying and believing the words to this older song, Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I live for you alone. Every step that I take, every moment I'm awake, Lord, have your way in me. Our pursuit is to love God supremely, to love Him entirely, to love Him completely, to love Him with all who, of who we are. Are you with me, church? That's, that's the goal. And when we love Him with all of who we are, all of the rest of life falls in line. Jessica and I went to a marriage retreat last year. and By the way, go to marriage retreats. They're good. They're healthy. Amen? 
Men, take your wife on a date this week. Get out there and take them on a date. Are you with me, men? Show them you love them. But this man challenged us as husbands to live this out. He said, he said Jesus, and his wife was named Janet. He said, this is, how we, this is how it is in my house. He goes, it's Jesus and Janet. Guess how it is in my house? Jesus and Jessica, right? And men, how is it in your house? Is it you and, or Jesus and then your wife, right? God first and then your wife. And here's the reality. When I love God with all of me, I love Jessica the way she needs me to love her. Are you hearing me? When we love God the way we need to, then we love our kiddos and our families and our church and everything else the way they should be loved. When we love God in the way he's called us to. But it's God first, church, amen? Jesus, Jesus kind of sums it up. He says, man, this, this sums it up, Mr. Scribe. You can, you can stop your debating, you can stop your bickering. The greatest commandment is to remember who God is. That there's only one true God, one Lord, and you are to love him with all that you are. But he doesn't stop. Jesus goes that extra mile. Goes into verse 31, and again, he quotes scripture from, from Leviticus 19, verse 18. And he says this, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let's say that again. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. Now, here's the thing. For most of the Jews, when they considered someone to be a neighbor, that would only include another Jew. If you were not an Israelite, you weren't considered a neighbor to them. In fact, if they didn't consider you a righteous Jew, then you weren't considered their neighbor, and therefore they didn't think that they had to love you the way God commands. So if you weren't a Jew, or if you were labeled unclean, or a sinner, or an outsider, and unrighteous, you weren't a neighbor to them. Man, we do that today. All over our news, we see nothing but hate. And let me just be very clear. There's no room in the gospel for that kind of hate. There's no, there's no room in, in, in this church. I'm just, I'm, let's just lay this out there. There's no room in, in the family of God for racism, ethnocentrism, culture superiority. Let's just throw that junk out the door. Are you with me, church? Man, that, that just goes against who God is. But the word Jesus uses here, the word neighbor, carries the meaning for fellow man or someone near or nearby. The idea here is all of mankind, those that God created in his image, all of those that God loves. So if you look to your neighbor, man, that God loves that person. Your worst enemy, God made that person in, in his image and he loves them. So it's not just the way we consider neighbors today, those that live next door to us, right? It's those plus your coworkers, plus your, your classmates, right? Plus your enemies, plus your family. Those you shot by, and even in Tucson church, those that drive by you. Everybody we come in contact with. We see this today even in some churches. If they aren't like us, or they don't live like us, then they're not treated well and, and loved as a neighbor. And we've got no place for that. Jesus says it's everyone. In Luke, he gives the example of the, great, the Good Samaritan. Anybody know that story, the Good Samaritan, right? I think even people that hate God know the Good Samaritan, right? I mean, just, right, the, the Jews and the Samaritans, man, they did not like each other. They, they, they would walk on the other side of the street just to avoid being anywhere near that other person. But in that story of the Good Samaritan, we see a Jewish man broken down and beat up and, and hurt and wounded on the side of the road. And it was the Samaritan that went and loved him. He loved the Jewish man as his neighbor. All of humanity. 
I remember going through a hard time. I hadn't been a pastor very long, and the senior, I was the associate pastor, and the senior pastor was out of town for about two and a half weeks, three, three different Sundays. And I'll tell you what, man, they, they knew it. Man, my, their life was not fun. And he, he got back. I'm just going to be honest with you. I said, any kids? Well, I won't say it. I'll say stinks instead. I just said, Pastor Paul, people stink. And he said, if it weren't for people, we'd have the greatest job in the world, wouldn't we? And then he says this, but Jesus is in the business of people. Jesus is in the people business, and so we love them because God loved us. And here's the thing, based off of what Jesus is saying, God first loved us, and so we are to love him with all of who we are. And it's out of our love for God that we can love our neighbor. Right? His love for us and our love for him makes it possible for us to love one another. And so Jesus gives us a measurement for how we are to love somebody else. He says this, you shall love your neighbor as what, church? As, yeah, let's try that again. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All right, some of you, all right. And, and this isn't Jesus talking about like a prideful kind of love for yourself. This isn't like, ooh, look at me kind of love, right? That's not what we're, that's not what we're talking about at all. He's talking about the love a person naturally has for themselves, to take care of themselves, to love who God has made you to be, to take care of you. Are you with me, church? If you're hungry, you show you love yourself by getting you some what? Food, right? If you're tired, you, you, show yourself that you, you show that you love yourself by resting. And so how do we love others? You see the needs within you as a human, right? You show you, show you love yourself by per- pursuing that, and you love others out of that. This isn't a, a sinful kind of fleshly love. And let's just, let's just put that out there. This isn't like love of sinful desires. Man, that's a love of sin. Right? We're not, are you with me, church? Man, we're not talking about, oh, I love to see porn, so I'm going to look. Are you with me, church? That's not what we're talking about here. I, wanna, I love money, so I'm going to pursue that. That's not what we're talking about. That's a love uh, pursuing sin. But it's a natural loving who God made you to be and taking care of you. It's that kind of love. And so Jesus says, take that. Take that and turn it inside out. Begin to love others and serve the need of others like you would yourself. And do it with all sincerity just like you would yourself. But we can only do this if we truly love God with all of who we are. Because, maybe we'll get the biggest amen, people are hard to love, right? People are hard to love. You are hard to love. I'm just being honest with you. I'm hard to love. Ooh, no amens. I was waiting for Levi. Some are easier than others, amen, right? But we show that we love God and that we are following the greatest commandment when we love others. What does it look like to love God completely? Well, one of the ways is when we love those that God has placed in our lives. Those that he's placed as our neighbor. Let's see how serious God is about this love. In 1 John 4.20, we read this. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So if you say you love God but hate your brother, something's not right. Something doesn't add up there. This verse will go on to say, don't, don't you look at me on this one. The Bible says you're a liar if you say you love God and not your brother, not your neighbor. If you're not loving those that God has placed around you, how can you possibly love God? And we check out verse John 4, 7 through 11. Beloved, talking about those that are in the church. The the family of God. Let us love one another. 
For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. But this is the love of God, or but, but this, the love of God was manifested in us that God had sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He paid that price. He took our place. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And we love one another because we have been first loved by a God when we didn't deserve it. God proved his love for us when Jesus came to die for us, church, when we didn't deserve it. That's genuine love. And because of that love, we show that we love God when we love God. Others, even those that don't deserve it. Every one of you guys can think of in your mind right now of someone that does not deserve the love of God. But Jesus says, look in the mirror, pal. Or pal. Et. What's a girl for pal? I don't know. So, <laughs> to love others, church, is to love God. I think I need to quit. I don't know. We can't love on our own, church. We can't love our neighbors on our own. It takes God in us and his grace in us to live that out. So church, we love God, right? We're to to love God and we must love Him supremely. And you do that when you love God for who He is and when you love God with all you are. And that's, that's the first and the second commandment is this. Because of His love and because we love Him, we must love others genuinely. Not with a fake love. Not with a, I hope someone sees me love you so that uh, I can get credit for it. Right? Not so that we can get extra likes on our Facebook page. We're going to love someone. But genuinely love others. When you experience God's love in your life, we respond by loving Him. And we also respond by loving those that, that He loves. So with all sincerity, see others around you. See them with the compassion, with the eyes of Jesus. And love them enough to serve them and to love them genuinely. So moving on in verse 32, the scribes here. He he hears and he affirms Jesus' statement. Remember, this is a smart guy. He says, the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you've truly stated that he is one, and there's no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understandings and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. This scribe, he is affirming what Jesus says. He is affirming who God is. He's affirming the greatest commandment to love God and then second to love others and to love with an everlasting love, church, and not one that is burnt up in a burnt offering or a sacrifice. Man, that love should not burn out. And Jesus, hearing this and knowing this man's heart, he replies to this scribe, Let's not miss what Jesus says here. Are we, are, we, are we good, everybody? When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, so he's answering from here, church. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Back in Mark chapter 1, Jesus says this, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I believe Jesus is is doing that here, calling this scribe to repentance and to believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. Not just head knowledge, but are you with me, church? 
right? He sees that this man is getting it in his head, that he's close to understanding, that it's not what we do, it's not our actions, it's not our works, we can't earn God. It's not about following the rules that, that gets us closer to God. Man, our lives have proven we can't do that, and Jesus came and he died for us because we couldn't do that. He sees that this scribe is learning and understanding that it's all about the heart and devotion, and so Jesus says, man, you're, you're close, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far from being in the family of God, Right? He's telling him, you need to understand, it's not about religion. It's, 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 it's about a, I know this can get old and tired, but it is not about religion. It's not about what we can do. It's about our relationship with Jesus Christ. The scribe is seeing and understanding the requirements of love in following God, but he needed now to truly love God. And to follow and love God completely and to repent and believe in the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. He's telling this man, you need Jesus. Right? You need to receive and experience the love of God through me is what Jesus says. And in a short time, Jesus is going to demonstrate that love for us. Right? The cross tells us that Jesus loves us, church. The cross tells us that Jesus loves us. And here's the bottom line. To love God, church, is to love others. To love others is to love God. Two great commandments, two great loves. Church, because of who God is. Love Him with all you are. And love those that God has placed in your life because He's sovereign and they're there for a reason. And love them genuinely because of the example Jesus left for us when He loved us on the cross. Let's just get get real. There's not one of us that deserve the love of Jesus, the love of God. But he gave up everything. He emptied himself and he came into the form of a servant. Born in a manger. The lowest of lows, his first guests were animals and then shepherds. Man, we we love others because the example that Jesus left for us. Here's the question for you. How will you respond this morning? Have you experienced the love of God yourself? Are you sitting here this morning? Have you ever experienced the love of God? Have you seen his love for you? And how he proved his love for you on the cross. Let's just get real, man. Women. Jesus gave everything for you. He died for you because he loved you while we were yet sinners. God proved and demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, while there's still sin in our life, God died for us. Jesus died for us. What kind of love is that? And we have a hard time loving the people that sit next to us because they hurt our feelings. Are you with me, church? Guys, if you're here this morning and you've not experienced the love of God, man, I I, I don't know how to help you. Like, it's right here. He came and He died for you. I do know how to help you. Point you to Jesus. That's the thing. Are you with me, church? And and here's the thing. If, If you do know Christ... Are we living out those two commandments? To love God supremely and love others genuinely. We're going to give you guys an opportunity to respond here. If you don't know Jesus, man, I, don't, I can't think of any reason why you would walk out of here not knowing Jesus. For God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him and trust in Jesus, right, and turn from their sins should not perish, should not spend eternity apart from God in a real place called hell but have everlasting life. Love we don't deserve. Let's pray.